This episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless, and that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both, so you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more about Zenium at zeniumhr.com. Okay, I'm really excited for today's episode. It's with Sabrina Horn. And you know that popular saying? I, mean, I know you've heard it. The saying is, just fake it till you make it. And is that really a recipe for success? Well, according to Sabrina, faking it till you make it is actually the worst business advice ever. So in this episode of Transform Your Workplace, Sabrina suggests that authenticity is the answer for those wishing to seize business success. So listen and gain insight into leading with authenticity in today's unpredictable business world. Enjoy the episode. Make sure to connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Direct messages are fine. Connections are great. And I, I would love to hear how you're loving the show. Enjoy the episode today with Sabrina Horn, and I'll talk to you next week. Sabrina, it is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Brandon. It's great to be here with you today. I'm excited to talk about your book, Make It, Don't Fake It, Leading with Authenticity for Real Business Success. So let's start with this, the big question, what's wrong with the fake it till you make it saying? Because I hear it a lot. A lot of people encourage it. There's a lot of leadership books that even say that. What's your perspective on that saying? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'll just head it off right here. Like, I, I think fake it till you make it is the worst business advice ever. And it started off quite innocently, actually. And, you know, I should say there are some origins in cognitive behavioral therapy for the phrase acting as if you want to exude certain behaviors and practicing them, visualizing things, dressing for success. These are all forms of self-help that you know, can help you kind of act in a different way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the phrase really like mutated through social media and pop culture, and it just became advice and, and an excuse to behave badly. Yeah. And it's interesting because even like, you know, Amy Cuddy's work with right. uh, her TED Talk, and I think her book is called Presence. And I remember reading that years ago, but there's, you know, this belief that, you know, I, including myself, I have this belief that, you know, I can tell a story about myself, who I want to be in attempt to grow into that person. But is there a better approach from your perspective? Well, yeah. I mean, having mentors, having people that you trust, who've been in your shoes, who want to see you succeed. These are the people who can give it to you straight and tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And I would also say having a really strong system like backbone of core values that you always go back to, right? That's your home base. And when you feel like maybe you need to fake it a little bit, or, you know, you need to lie in that job interview, or you want to exaggerate the truth to like win a sale or something right. like that's what has to keep you grounded and to keep you from faking it. You said in the book that faking it is not sustainable. Why do you say that? Because here's the bottom line, like, why faking it doesn't work. It's because 
the truth always comes out. So it's not sustainable because it may take a day, a week, a month, you know, in, in the case of some other people who are in court right now, like Elizabeth Holmes, <laughs> it might take um, right. it might take a couple of years, but like the truth always comes out and you'll be caught, you'll be exposed for your lies or for, for what you said, your untruths, and it'll set you back and sabotage your success. So whether it's a personal relationship or a business relationship, like faking it doesn't help you make it, it helps you fail. You know, a lot of people listening and even myself to a certain extent, like the the faking it till you make it on the surface for a lot of people, it's probably harmless. They're just like, this is what I want to be. So I'm going to, you know, fake it till I make it and grow into that person. But you know, what, what should people be telling themselves instead of, of that? Is it, is there a path that they head down where it's like they fake it till they make it and it snowballs into just flat out lies? Like what's the spectrum of this? Right. So in my book, I, when I was writing it, I was thinking about like, what are all the different ways that people fake it? Like from kind of like the innocent little white lie to when you cross the line and, and you say and do things at other people's expense for personal gain. That's when you're faking it and it's not good, right? You're distorting the facts. You're minimizing the reality of a situation. You're exaggerating the truth. Selective truth-telling is, is another form of faking it where you're actually telling the truth but leaving out certain important facts. <laughs> you know, that can be very dangerous, as was the case in the Boeing Max aircraft disaster. Sometimes people fake it because... And they're not lying. They're just completely overwhelmed. You know, you're in a crisis situation and you just flat out don't know what to do. And so you just like pretend it doesn't exist and hope it goes away. That's faking it too. And then, you know, all the way off the charts into the deep end, we've got jail time (laughs) for fraud and and total deception. Yeah. What you're describing right now, is this the fake-o-meter graphic? Yes, it's the fake-o-meter. Yeah, I thought like, well, I've got to put this all on some kind of continuum. And so I, I created the, the fake-o-meter and uh, it seemed to, to work well in order to sort of explain to people visually like, okay, so where am I exactly on this continuum? That's right. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. You have a background in, in PR. You built a PR public relations company and very successful at it. What's interesting is that I think a lot of people think, you know, Public relations is all about the art of the spin. What do you tell people who think that way? Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of one of the reasons why I thought my particular perspective being a PR person would be kind of unique for this book. (laughs) Um, You might think, oh, it's kind of interesting to hear a PR person talking about authenticity. So the truth of the matter is that PR is not really about spin at all. PR actually is all about getting to the truth and peeling back the onion and finding out what really is the baseline here so that you can then find a path forward and navigate to the other side. You know, the old spin doctors put us on the map, make us look larger than life, make us be a hot company yeah. to watch. Like That catches up with them eventually, I think is your point. Yeah. I mean, like if I had a nickel, as they say, <laughs> um, for every time, you know, an executive or a tech company asked me to do that. But the, but the truth of the matter is we just find what is most compelling about the truth and then differentiate that story from other stories and, and then tell that story with viable examples and case studies and, and facts. 
Yeah. You know, something that's resonated with me right now, just in your PR background, I'm a huge sports fan. So nothing's worse than seeing somebody on the podium, like getting caught in a lie or some sort of scandal and they deny it. And it eventually, the truth eventually comes out, but I feel like the ones who are authentic and actually just own it, tell the background story or whatever they need to do, just make it go away. And eventually dies down and people forget. Yeah. I mean, so like a couple of points on that, like Honesty is a really great strategy. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> because it's really a novelty, unfortunately, in the, the times that we live in. Like, wouldn't you much rather admit telling a mistake and taking your lumps where you need to and making corrections as needed than being caught in a lie? I mean, neither of those two options are great, but you'll recover in, in a much better fashion and maintain your integrity and that of all of your employees and your company and your customers, right? And when you admit the truth, people stop poking at you. Then they're satisfied. Okay, so then now what are you going to do about it? Throughout the book, you're pretty open and authentic about your own you know, business uh, success and the crises that you, you went through, you even wrote that you faked it plenty of times, I think probably early on in your career. And each time it set you back in some way, maybe describe to listeners, you know, what sort of things happened where you faked it and how did it set you back and what did you learn from it? Right. Well, I don't think we have enough time on this podcast <laughs> to cover all those times. But um, I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples to show you the spectrum. So when I was started my business, I was 29 years old. I probably knew enough to be dangerous, I had four years of job experience. I probably had managed like an intern. Okay. I'd never, like here I am running, starting a company and running. Hiring employees. <laughs> Hiring employees, right? And I thought as a CEO, I have to have all the answers. And so, you know, I'm meeting with clients or I'm talking to an employee and they're going on and on about something or asking me a question. And so I like made up the answer or pretended I, I knew what the person was talking about when in fact I should have just said, you know what, that's a, that's a really interesting thing you're bringing up. Can you tell me more? Or saying, you know what, I'm not really sure about that at this moment. Let me go figure that out and I'll get back to you in a couple of hours and we'll figure out the game plan going forward. Like that would have been so much more productive and would have, I would have established so much more credibility, right? With those different people than what actually happened was people watching me basically lie and make something up that I then had to kind of backtrack on and then come up with another story to sort of course correct that once I actually did have the answer. You know, those are small examples, but they can spread because, you know, if I do it, then why wouldn't my employees do it too, right? Yeah, it seems like it would, it would infect the culture in a negative way. Totally. So, so that's one example. Worst example was during uh, the internet bubble of 2000, 2001, when it burst. Business was basically like vaporizing overnight. And I was also eight months pregnant with my second daughter. And I did not want to deal with this. I had worked so hard to build up my firm and you know we had great clients, we were making good money, we had a great reputation and I just literally stuck my head in the sand and wanted to pretend that it would all just get better the next day. <laughs> and of course it didn't, right? It kept getting worse and worse until finally one of my financial advisors said, Sabrina, for the privilege of sitting in this chair, you 
have to be responsible for the financial health of this business, you need to do a layoff because you're, you don't have the revenue anymore, right? You've got to right size your ship. And if you don't, you could lose it all. So that was a huge wake up call for me. And I paid a price you know, I faked it, right? I, I pretended, I hoped to whatever. Hope is not a strategy. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I paid a price for that because I had to make deeper cuts than if I had made the decision sooner. And I lost credibility, I think, with uh, some members of my team. You know, it's interesting, you know, you telling the stories and just reading your book and even trying to understand why, the why behind a lot of this. Like, why do people fake it? Like, if you could look back in those moments where you did fake it, it wasn't out of ill intent. I mean, it didn't sound like it. I mean, maybe if you just kept lie after lie, it becomes ill intent at some point. But if you could look from a 30,000 foot view, why do people fake it? What's the answer to that? There are two reasons why. One is because it's hard to face the truth sometimes, right? Like, you know, if you're in a crisis situation, like I was facing having to do something horrible, laying off my people or potentially embarrassing myself in front of a client by not having an answer, right? It's hard to face that, the harsh truths of reality. And so what do we do instead? We don't want to face it, so we fake it. And the second reason um, is because many times we also feel insecure, right? We may feel like we're undeserving of our success, like what happens when you have imposter syndrome and you fake it, or, you know, somebody is putting you up on a pedestal, right? And you feel like, oh my God, like I'm not the person they think I am. I have to be who they think I am. And it's all kind of based on an insecurity and a lack of confidence. So those are the two reasons why. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up the imposter syndrome thing because I hear this a lot. I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like I battle it every once in a while, like other people are going to figure me out. I imagine as you're building your business, you, you battled imposter syndrome a lot. What was, what's the solution for getting out of that feeling? So we're talking about integrity here. So the honest truth of it is I never felt like I had imposter syndrome while I was running my company. I mean, I had like little moments and I would catch myself, but I really suffered from it when I sold my company. And I was suddenly after 24 years working inside another company, right, that had bought mine. And these people who bought my company, they thought I would walk in the room and the show would start, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there were moments where in a, in a sales meeting, I couldn't complete an English sentence to, to introduce myself. It really rattled my cage and it shook my confidence. And ultimately, I worked hard over about a period of a year to kind of deal with that. But it's much more common than people think. And it's a real thing. And if you know that it can happen to you, it can happen to you when you change jobs, when you get promoted, right? You're in a new situation where people are unfamiliar with you and nobody knows what to expect of each other, right? That's sort of when it happens. And if you know that it can happen, then you can do things to uh, hopefully avoid it. How important is it to ground yourself in the reality about what you can and cannot do? It's everything, Brandon. It is everything, right? Again, like at the beginning of this, I talked about core values, right? It's all about being grounded. Like this is what I can accomplish. This is what I stand for. This is what I don't stand for, right? This is what I will not tolerate. This is how we're going to treat customers. This is how we're going to treat each other as human beings. That is so important, especially now in this 
sort of still pandemic, post-pandemic world that we live in, right? It is absolutely essential to have that sort of sit-down meeting with yourself, maybe once a year, maybe a couple times a year with your leadership team. Like, are we holding true to our values? Like when we mess up, what went wrong there and how can we get back in alignment with them? You could either speak generally about this or even about yourself personally, but when you make it, like you sold your business, does it ever really feel like you've arrived or are you still always chasing like this next better version of yourself? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, certainly selling your business is part of the American dream, right? To have done that successfully and to land the bird, you know, that you've been flying for so long at the right airport and get to the right gate, you know? And I mean, it's it's amazing. But my personal philosophy is actually what you alluded to, that you never should stop learning, right? And I often used to say to my team, like the day you think you've made it is the day you should quit your job because you're always making it. You're always striving for the next thing and learning something new because you have to stay relevant, right? Otherwise you stagnate and you lose your edge. And frankly, you become fairly boring. Yeah, that's very true. You know, we've been talking about this at the individual level, but I know this applies to organizations and brands. You said some interesting things about like if organizations and brands aren't, you know, stuck in the reality of what they are or even are grounded in values, they're they're at risk of being commoditized. Talk about that a little bit. Well, in terms of like a a brand, right, it, it depends upon what kind of business you're in. There's so many things today that can be commoditized and commoditization is also a form of branding, but you still stand as any kind of company, you stand for a few things, right? Whether you're a distributor or you make furniture or you make laptops or whatever it is, you still stand for certain things and how you treat your customers, how responsive you are, uh, your public face to the world, to your investors or shareholders, if you're a publicly traded company, like nobody is above that. And I don't care what business you're in, those things still value externally as well as internally in terms of how you um, treat your, your people, right? There's so many examples today of companies that are not treating their employees properly. You know, it seems like there's another company every day of the week that's being put out there for doing that. And that's part of your brand too. And a lot of leadership teams seem to forget about that. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the current environment we're in which is like, you know, the great resignation or the big quit era where, you know, employees are leaving. I think it's a big opportunity for organizations to be authentic and, you know, stay grounded in who they are and what they value, because I think that attracts a certain type of person. Wouldn't you think? Yes, it does. I have two things I want to say about that. I actually think when we say the great resignation, we're not being complete in how we talk about that. It's not that people are just leaving. Right. Like, well, where are they going? Like, are they, <laughs> like they, they need money. People need income. So I, they're going, they're going somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. They're leaving the company for right. maybe the grass is greener on the other side or they think so. Yeah. So, you know, I call it the great reshuffle actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a better way to put it. I'll start using that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You can use it. <laughs> um, the great reshuffle or the great blender. Um, I also use that phrase, but you know, yes, it is It is a great opportunity for companies to attract great talent. 
But here's the thing. You can't strap on authenticity if you aren't authentic, right? right? You can't suddenly decide you're going to have an empathetic culture and you know, it's, it's not, it's like a veneer, right? It's not, it has to be visceral within your culture and your business processes. That's what it means to be authentic, that it's it's in your veins and in your blood. And a lot of companies are pushing the reset button on how they're acting and behaving and their core values, right? And shifting some of the priorities of those values, because, the bottom line is like if if your leadership team isn't authentic you can't just say a couple things and then you know people will believe that right the true self always comes out yeah it does seem like whether it's the ceo or the the senior leadership team they've really got to set the tone but otherwise it seems like the authenticity comes through in one conversation at a time, really, throughout the culture. Yeah, I mean, it goes through your culture and every interaction you you have with your people and your leadership team and your middle managers are essential to carrying that out, right? That's why leadership teams are so critical that because they help the CEO and the top person sort of manage and keep that culture and protect it, right? It's when, okay, we've all made bad hires, right? And those people either will self-select out or they'll rapidly be identified as not really being a good fit because in fact the culture is so strong and that's why again those core values like really protect a company and they'll see you through tough times it's essential how does resilience keep us from faking it you talk about this in your book and i I love this section So resilience has many different definitions, but I see it as essentially the strength to rebound from tough times. And I did write in my book, I don't know if this is the section you're referring to, but if you're a leader, you will often lose more often than you want to. And how you rebound from loss and are resilient in those situations says everything about you as a leader. And and a lot of books are written about winning and succeeding and blah, blah, right? But I wanted to write a chapter in this book about like, okay, like you're going to lose. You're going to, you're going to lose those deals. You're going to screw up the meeting. You're going to, you know, you're going to make mistakes. It's reality. And so how do you rebound from that? Well, again, I mentioned this earlier, but having a really strong group of mentors and advisors, not on your board of directors, these is a personal network of people who you can talk to, to give you the shot in the arm you need. You blow it one day, you go home feeling like a loser. You've got to get up the next day and make like a leader again. And I find that visualizing Um, yourself, like how you're going to rebound, what are you going to say? You cannot give up. Like for the privilege of being in that chair, you cannot give up. And it's okay to be humble and to ask for help, to admit that you made a mistake. What that does, it's magic. I think humility is one of the most underrated superpowers of leadership because If you can admit a mistake, it actually shows confidence and it levels the playing field for others and makes them feel safe to do the same thing. And, you know, what what do you have then? You have a culture that doesn't tolerate politics, that's very innovative, where people feel safe. And that is essential to rebounding from loss and being resilient. Yeah. What's a good approach for leaders during a crisis? I'm thinking 
even during COVID, everything wasn't going perfectly for a lot of companies out there. And what's the approach that you would recommend leaders take in, in a situation like that and when it comes to either behaviors or how they communicate with their employees about the reality? Yeah. So, I mean, there are many different ways that you can deal with a crisis. Every crisis has three elements, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's called the FUD factor. And if you're a leader, right, those are those are tough times to uh, be navigating some choppy waters. And I would recommend a few things. First of all, the worst time to develop a crisis plan is when you're in a crisis because everything's coming. Yeah. And you're just reactive, right? You don't have time to think. And so immediately you're behind the eight ball. You've got to develop different crisis plans for the unthinkable. Certainly who thought a global pandemic would ever affect us. So, you know, you've got to think about like a global cyber attack. You've got to think about acts of God, like a a horrible earthquake or another Hurricane Sandy kind of event, right? How will your business continue to function in some capacity? And putting those crisis plans in place and reevaluating them every six months or year is essential to being able to lead through a crisis rather than responding to everything. Next, I would recommend contingency planning. So there are different phases of crises. As you're coming out of a crisis, right, everything's still changing and kind of unraveling and unfolding. It's like a moving target. And so you want to have lots of different arrows in your quiver. Okay, next week, if this happens, we're going to do this. If that happens, we're going to do that. So at any given moment, you can hope for the best, but you have a plan for the worst. And somehow in the middle, you can kind of straddle those two ends of the spectrum and move forward. The other thing I would say in any sort of tough period, as a leader, communication is so essential. If you're not a good communicator, then you need to learn how to become one or have a great person to be your spokesperson uh, and be able to communicate honest truthful and difficult messages. And the last thing I would say on that note, right, in communicating in difficult times is to do it often and frequently. You cannot tell somebody once that, you know, here's the plan. Like people are afraid they need to hear things multiple times through multiple different channels. And it's just like, say you're waiting for your plane at the gate and it's not there yet, right? You want the little woman behind the behind the counter, right? You want it like, where's the plane, right? (laughs) And you don't want to wait half an hour for the next update, right? So even if the update is the same, you want to hear it. That's the interesting thing for leaders. I think they often don't communicate because they're like, oh, I have nothing new to say. Like what? It doesn't matter. It's going to look like I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't matter. Even if you have to repeat the same thing, it is still provides reassurance. It makes you feel safe. You know, it makes you feel like, okay, this this is my marker. This is where we're at. And tomorrow, hopefully we'll have more news to share. And if you don't have more news to share, then you say that. But saying nothing is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. So a lot of us have either individuals or as organizations, we oftentimes have goals and objectives that we're trying to reach. In the book, you suggested that people should really start creating near-term outlooks and guides that will get them going towards their goals and objectives. How does this practice help people stay on track and true to who they are? Yeah, so it's kind of what I call airtight management. You don't want to have any cracks or any chinks in the armor, right? You want it to be airtight. The lid on that jar needs to be 
tight. And the way that you can manage through different plans and achieve your goals is by always looking at, okay, like what's the long-term goal? Like what does success look like? A year from now, where do I want to be? And then work your way back to today. And you want to always have a near-term view where you're looking down the hood. Like what what do I need to do this week, this month? but not at the expense of looking down the road and across the street for the hazards and opportunities that might get in your way or maybe things you want to capitalize on, right? So it's always this sort of toggle between looking, taking a long-term view and a short-term view, and then always like readjusting, realigning, course correcting, right? You have to be tireless and relentless about it. But if you are, right, then you can avoid those obstacles that are going to take time and you're going to, you know, have to clean up after yourself. Uh, the, The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So find the straight line. Sabrina, this has been such a fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the book as well. And it's got 78 reviews on Amazon. So it's doing well. I think it hit number one on the business ethics uh, ranking. So congratulations on that. I hope people take the time to check it out, read it, uh, if they get a chance. Where can people learn more about you, the book, anything that you'd want to share with people before we leave? Oh, sure. Anybody can uh, find me on my website. It's www.sabrinahorn.com. There is a page on my website. It's sabrinahorn.com forward slash book. So you can find out more about the book and where to buy it. Of course, I'm sure Amazon would be happy to sell you a copy. Um, But there are many other online retailers who are carrying my book. Uh, And you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter and Instagram at Sabrina Horn. Sabrina Horn. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. I had a blast. Thank you so much for for having me today. 